Hello and welcome to the BUL Duel podcast. I'm excited to have a conversation today with a remarkable entrepreneur that thrives on turning chaos into order. Tim Calise is a former alternative investment executive that at the age of 25 raised $325 million, then used that momentum to launch and grow five businesses to seven and eight figures. He's the host of the Leveling the Field podcast where he helps CEOs and founders of service-based businesses get unstuck. I've been looking forward to this conversation all day. Tim, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to it as well. I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Now, $325 million at the age of 25. I don't know if the 25 was intentional, but can you paint a bit of a picture for us of your journey that you went through, through that, and then kind of where you are today? Yeah. So I graduated kind of in the traditional sense with a science in economics and finance. And that led me to a, an internship at a company that was formerly called Solomon Smith Barney for anybody who's kind of in the finance world. That's basically part of Citigroup and spent about a year there and realized taking phone calls and kind of executing orders on behalf of other folks was fantastic. It was a great learning experience. But one day I woke up and said, talked to the, the guy that I was working for at the time and said, how do I get on the other end of the phone? And he said, that's kind of the right question to ask. And he made an introduction to a gentleman who had just started a very, very small hedge fund. And for those who aren't familiar kind of with that industry, the number one metric, uh, kind of like revenue or profits in that world is assets under management, how much money you have to manage. And at that time we had a great track record and we had a great story, but we had no assets. And so at 21, 22, I took kind of the fact that I had opportunity and the fact that I was single and could kind of crisscross the country with some level of freedom. I took that story and basically went from everywhere. I was in Birmingham, Alabama of all places, uh, but was on the West Coast four or five times a year, went to conferences and basically spoke to anyone that would listen. And we found our niche in the audience was high net worth individuals that we were raising capital or out of their investment accounts and primarily retirement. So I was talking to high net worth individuals who were looking for safety, but growth in their retirement accounts. And at that time, one of the things that I realized very quickly was the industry was a little bit of the wild west and hedge funds kind of had a big head at that time. You should be thankful that I'm allowing you to give me money to manage. It was kind of backwards if you think about it. We took the strategy of being basically hyper-communicative and all about safety and security. Uh, and that allowed us to gain a reputation of a place that no one ever questioned whether their money was safe with us. And so you kind of start in small increments, 100,000, 250,000 at a time. And then once we got to kind of a big enough size, we were able to take allocations of 50 and $100 million towards the end. But it was a great experience to kind of get the ball rolling and kind of that parabolic growth curve. It taught mm -hmm. me kind of what momentum looks like in a business like that. Interesting. Now, that's really cool that you did that as a young 25-year-old. That probably really had a big impact on your confidence, I would assume, when it came to actually going past that and beyond that. Yeah, I think in the beginning, I had the hangups, the mental hangups of being the youngest guy in the room and feeling like I didn't belong. But the interesting part was a lot of this kind of quote sales that we made were phone calls. They were phone consultations and walking through, call it a sales script, but really it was, this is a little bit about what we do. Here's how we see the world and why we are the folks to be trusted. And I think that 
the fact that it was phone gave me a little bit of a level of anonymity, which was nice to have. So I could kind of be any kind of, I could be the young guy, but nobody saw that I didn't have gray hair yet. So I think that took some of the stigma away from, and then once you start to kind of build momentum, then it becomes, okay, I've been able to achieve a certain level of success doing this. And then I was able to get into some of those rooms that I probably dreamed of in the beginning. That's cool. Have you heard of the term, the halo effect? Yes, I have. And I think it was back in the day of when Anthony Sturmucci, as an example, who most folks know now, he had started a now well-known conference called the SALT Conference. And the first one was in Las Vegas and we were invited to attend. And I think Bill Clinton spoke that first year and it's a heavyweight place. NBC actually relocates their team to this conference every year. That's how big of a deal it is, like Davos. And so sitting in the back of that room, I think that was when it first struck me that I had kind of belonged in the room, the fact that that was an invite that we got and I was able to, to set meetings and get allocations in that crowd. I think that fundamentally was a game changer for me psychologically because before that I definitely had the imposter syndrome. Right. Imposter syndrome is really funny. I'm glad you mentioned that actually, because when it comes to imposter syndrome, it's like you're trying to be somebody that you're not. Growing up, did you that this was the path that you're going to follow? Is it something that you were just like, I know where I'm going and get out of my way? Like, is that kind of what it was for you? <laughs> Yeah, I think I was that kid. My father actually was was in finance in a different kind of discipline, but I knew I was raised kind of with the idea of like the sky's the limit. And at that time I had the idea of you had to kind of follow the, get through school, go to college, get your MBA, go work on Wall Street and kind of cut your teeth that way. But I think I always had a little bit of a different vision for myself. I was very independent, much more entrepreneurial rather than traditional Wall Street banker. And so like when I was 10 years old at 10 or 11, I carried an attache briefcase to middle school, like morning meeting. I have two sisters. They were absolutely embarrassed to be seen with me, but I think I kind of emulated what was around me at that time. And that gave me kind of the start of not knowing the answer. No. And it was, everything was just a puzzle to be figured out. And I think that's what it, when I was in that role of, of capital raising, it was How do we figure this out? How do we move forward? Where are the pockets where we can compete? And again, just kind of finding that foundation took some time. But then once we were able to get there, it it was a great starting off point. I'm picturing a Sheldon Cooper carrying his briefcase. Yeah, (laughs) it was. uh, And in hindsight, I still talk to my sister about this. We must have walked into school. I went right. They went left as fast as they could. Uh, I probably wasn't the coolest coolest kid at that time. I love that. That's pretty good. I, I don't picture you as that now. But I'm glad you did that because that's a great story. The idea of going into the one career path versus the other, entrepreneurship versus the busy hustle and bustle of Wall Street. When you decided to go the entrepreneurial route, did you realize that it was going to be, or did you think that it was going to be easier or harder or more rewarding? Was there a thought process that went into that? Yeah, the the driving force was primarily around lifestyle at that time. Typically, the Wall Street route is number one. I think there's two things. One is lifestyle and the other is mentality. And what I mean by that is there's, the Wall Street lifestyle is cutthroat, is you're putting the hours in. It's like being an attorney in the early days. You're mm-hmm. putting the hours in, sleeping in the office kind of thing. And I knew that at some point I wanted a different life. And my sense from what I could tell was once you get into that world, it's hard to accept yourself. So you could say, well, you just get in, do what needs to be done, work for 10, 15, whatever years, put some money away and then leave. I think that was my 
belief of how that would work out. I think it's kind of intoxicating once you're in, you've done the work. It's momentum kind of is what it is. And I don't, I didn't see that being the path for me. The second is I've always been more emotional or more, uh, not kind of that cutthroat idea of competing red ocean never really felt right for me. I liked the idea of kind of being more creative, problem solving, delivering value in that way, rather than just trying to kind of step over everybody else. And I think I probably shied away from that in the beginning. And that's the reason I took the path. I think that I did at that time. Yeah. Nice. You have a gentle demeanor about you, so I can't picture you in that role. (laughs) Yeah. And maybe I could, I was at our hedge fund. I did a lot of the trading and so Probably by volume, I was one of the top 10 traders at that time. We Mm -hmm. traded hundreds of millions of shares in a pretty short amount of time. But that's a different kind of competitive. It's the markets are a zero-sum game and everybody thinks they're right, which is an interesting dynamic in (laughs) and of itself, both buyers and sellers. But I think my creative side still was able to be exercised in that because the metrics you look at are things like when you want to make a decision, how quickly can I get in? How quickly can I get out? Who are the other parties involved? So there's, it was still kind of relationship driven rather than I win, you lose. And I think that was kind of an interesting dynamic at that time for me. The skill set that you have, that you bring to the table when it comes to listening, like your podcast, I was listening to a couple of episodes and knowing that you work with CEOs and founders, you mentioned just a word there is artistic, right? Do you see that in terms of operations and strategy and tactics? Do you see a level of artistry in there versus science and data? It's a balance, but I'll give you some examples. Look at the data side as the measuring stick, for lack of a better term. So we have data to understand where we are. I use data primarily to understand for feedback loops and things like that. We do a lot of testing along the way. So as in a basic example, if you're running an A-B test, which one is performing better, things like that. But fundamentally, I work in kind of three primary areas. It's basically product, pricing, and it's kind of positioning. And so I'll look at the last one, positioning. Most small or medium-sized business owners that feel stuck, it usually is a result of not being differentiated in the marketplace by some way, shape, or form. Either the product, their their pricing, their positioning, all of those things tell a story which stands out well enough. I think that's where the thick part comes in. You can take the same inputs, reconstruct them in a way that is new, and then get a different outcome. Um, I think that's the interesting part for me is we use data, but then there's also a kind of creative packaging side, which the market will ultimately tell you which one it values in the short term, one versus another. But I like that kind of creative problem solving. Did you use that same methodology when it came to gym launch? Uh, my artistic expression as it related to gym launch for the part of gym launch, we had a kind of a sister entity called Allen and Allen was a lead nurturing software that we built based on machine learning. This was best alignment of data science, literally I had a data science team that we worked with and artistic kind of presentation, which is we were creating a new business opportunity for lack of a better term. It was lead nurturing. It was software, but what it allowed our clients to do was to stand out from the the noise. I used 
kind of both of those parts of my brain, which I love to create a new product, to bring it to market. And there was, we had a 30 person development team. I had a multi-person data science team, but ultimately all of those things combined allowed us to grow from basically zero to over one and a half million MRR in about six months because it was just such a very strong value proposition in the marketplace. Our clients were marketing agencies primarily. And at that time, the model for them was effectively a retainer plus model. So pay me $1,000, $2,000 a month, and then plus maybe a success fee or ad spend or something like that. So what Alan did was to take a lead and find out with a 99.9% accuracy whether that lead showed up for a sales appointment. And it did everything in between from opt-in to sales appointment. What that allowed a marketing agency to do, it, just, it would be to say, we don't just generate leads. Not only do we generate appointments, we generate shows. So we took the industry from proxies, which was you pay on leads because that's the closest thing we can get to, or we pay on booked appointments because it's the closest thing we got to. He basically said, no, we're actually going to pay you when they actually show up. And we aligned revenue with the opportunity. And so it became, instead of retainer plus, it was don't pay me anything until they show. Lined all the interest, which was why it took off so quickly. That's very cool. Is that still operating right now? It is. Okay, cool. I'll have to check it out. <laughs> and, and how does that tie into Gym Launch again? So Gym Launch, at its beginning, when it was founded by Alex and Will, it was founded as a business consultancy. So for a kind of with a new business model. One of that includes lead generation, it included pricing, it included operations, things like that. The glaring hole, though, after we kind of tackled those other pieces was gym owners didn't want to work leads. Mm. It's the unsexy but very important piece probably to any service-based business. And the numbers as they stood were if you got 100 opt-ins, generally speaking in the gym space, about 18% of those, so 18 out of 100, would actually show up for their consultation. So the question is, where did the other 82 go? And so we went through everything. We trained on how to nurture better. We put all these various things in place. But ultimately, it kind of came out of this idea of if we just did it for the market. Some basic ta kind of tactical things would be thing would we understood all the things around an opt-in. So is it male, female, location, time of opt-in, and then what we knew on the the back end of that was from the first communication, do you say, hey, hi, or hello? There's actually an answer to that, depending on who it is. And so we would optimize all of the communication around things that we knew had the highest likelihood to, for that person to show. Interesting. So it's really granular. You get right down to that. Yeah. Oh, yes. So we knew tonality and we were basically in real time split testing messaging. It was a great product. It really was. It was great because, it, as I mentioned before, it aligned everyone's interests. We felt good because we made money when somebody showed. The agency had a new business model that they could kind of go to the marketplace with and be different than kind of what was. And their client, which might be a gym, they were getting more people to show in a highly efficient service offering where there was no hope. It was just, if they show, you pay. If they don't show, then you don't pay. Like that's the yeah. ultimate kind of alignment of interest. And it felt good to be able to bring that to the marketplace. That makes a lot of sense now when you think about how you take chaos and turn it into order, right? There's that thought yeah. process that goes into it. Inevitably, you're going to get stuck 
right? Human, everyone's human. We all get stuck in certain places. Do you have a way of thinking around getting stuck? Do you just stop and leave it for a little while? Or do you have a process to get unstuck in your either personal life or in your business? Yeah, a couple of things. I think, and it's just kind of a timely discussion because I think the last kind of six to 12 months for me personally have been around trying to kind of uncover what the next season of my life was going to look like. And that could feel very isolating and can make you feel stuck. I think some basic things, changing your environment is a great way to kind of change your thought process simply from a kind of contextual perspective. Don't sit in your office and try to bang your head against the wall trying to come up with something new. Go somewhere different, et cetera, et cetera. I think that certainly helps. One of the best pieces of advice that I would give my younger self would be to get a mentor. I joined a mentorship group. It's actually how we got to know each other in the beginning. I think that was hugely helpful because it allowed me to get forward momentum while seeing kind of based on what others were doing. And I think Surrounding yourself with people that are taking action causes you by default to want to take some kind of, even if it's imperfect action. I think that's certainly helpful. But I think most people feel stuck. And I know for myself is when you feel like you don't have clarity on what the right next thing to do is and trying to do both the kind of three-year vision, where do I ultimately want to end up? And I'm not a proponent of doing kind of three-year business plans like tomorrow we're going to do this. And then six months from now, this is what I'm going to be doing because nobody has any of that. I just think that level of clarity doesn't exist. Here's where I want to go three years from now. So here are the things that I must do today to give myself the chance to end up in that place. The analogy that I, or the picture I always have is you've probably seen that meme of like the ladder where the rungs are really far apart. And then you see the ladder with the ring. I was definitely stuck in that trying to do one big leap instead of a lot of small victories. So I would encourage anyone to try to compartmentalize or create kind of those piecemeal actions that you can take to at least start to move forward. Yeah, I love that because environment for sure makes a big difference. I talk a lot about getting outside as a change in environment. Get outside, go in nature. We live in Northern Canada and luckily this year has been really wonderful the summer, but winters get really cold and I'm talking like minus 30 Celsius and Fahrenheit. That's when it hits the same. Ooh. And I'll still go outside for a walk and it's painful and you're dressed completely, you look like the, the marshmallow man because you're wearing so many clothes, but there's something about being outside that just gets you there. The other thing is being around kids and you have children as well. For the most part, until they hit a certain age, they have no inhibitions. They have no baggage, if you want to call it that. And, and it, that feeling of being around it is beautiful. Yesterday was World National Mental Health Day. And I love that we're bringing light to that because getting stuck and having success as an entrepreneur, there's these crazy highs and these big lows. And with that comes mental health issues and anxiety and depression and all that. If you want to talk about it, I'm opening the stage here for you, but have you struggled with dealing with mental health with those ups and downs? And if you have, is there something that you found that helped a lot? I think kind of the rest of the answer to your last question of kind of what do you do when you're stuck? For me, it's around beliefs. And my challenges, I think in the past, I definitely am susceptible to anxiety in many ways, partially because I'm a perennial optimist, but what comes with taking chances are the inevitable pitfalls. You have to have the kind of the downside to have the upside. And especially I have three kids, I have a wife, we have responsibilities. If I was single, it was like, what was the worst that could happen? 
now my thoughts are more around taking others on the ride with me and trying to protect them. What if things don't work out? carries a different weight, I think, now that it did, say, 20 years ago prior to those things. I think for me, I'm also one of those people who lets their personal health and well-being fall by the wayside. I definitely was of the mind of kind of the grind. Going back as far as I can remember, it was he who basically outworks the other will win. And I think there's a naivete that comes with that basic things like calendaring, you know, scheduling yourself. If I want to get more done, I just open up my calendar more. That's actually not the right answer, <laughs> but it takes a long time to learn some of those lessons. And I think my anxiety and concern and things like quality of sleep have suffered working out or moving, just getting some movement in suffered. Momentum is a great thing. Warren Buffett said it's the wonder of the world, but it works both ways. Negative actions and the influences of kind of lack of Clarity, lack of confidence, those can cause you to spiral down. I've definitely kind of felt that myself. And I think in entrepreneurism, in my opinion, is an isolating endeavor, regardless of what you're doing. And so trying to actively seek out context and whether that be social or professional, for me, is important and probably something I need to continue to kind of remind myself on a daily basis. Thank you for sharing that insight with us. It is isolating and important as well. Entrepreneurship is great. It contributes to the overall economy. It helps with the family and all that. But yes, it is very isolating. And I see the same thing with all the entrepreneurs I talk to is that they're really excited about what they're working on. But at the same time, there's that level of what if it doesn't work or am I doing the right thing or am I in the right direction? And that's natural. That's normal. What is it that you're working on right now that's got you really fired up? I was feeling really stuck myself. Mm -hmm. I have this cognitive dissonance in my head, which has been lingering for a couple of quarters now, which is trying to balance the idea of creating a personal brand okay. with authenticity. <laughs> because some of the biggest brands that are out there right now, if you kind of start from zero, are ones that I personally perceive as kind of doing whatever is necessary to get eyeballs from an entertainment perspective, whereas I don't see myself as a traditional entertainer. How do you create a personal brand with authenticity is something I've kind of struggled with. And part of, as we talked about kind of the imposter syndrome is pretending someone you're not. For me, the thing that I know that I'm really good at is I am a really good number two. I've kind of recently gone out and created my own new endeavor kind of from a business perspective doing investing and consulting and coaching. I was trying to show that I could be the number one guy. But in reality, I don't actually want the limelight. I want to make other people's dreams come true as a number two. And if I actually look back at the most successful things I've ever done, I was the number two guy. I was the one who kept the trains running on time, where I was allowed to kind of exercise that creative problem-solving brain that I really like to live in. My endeavor right now is to go and find service-based business owners who are looking to grow, who want to double their cash flow in the next 24 months and create a sellable business for themselves while with me behind the curtain in a completely non-competitive perspective of, I don't want the limelight. I want to make sure you look like a rock star. 
And that's both external and internal within these organizations that I'm working with. That for me is the most exciting part because I now feel like I have a clear value proposition for myself, which is, I think right now, especially given the changes in kind of market climate are particularly of interest at this point. Interesting. When you say number one, number two, just to clarify, we're talking CEO yeah. and COOs. Exactly. Yeah. At Gym Launch, I built a product. I was not the CEO. I didn't have to, I wasn't the guy up on the stage, but I can talk about being a number two. I know what that looks like. And I know what that means. I was kind of, somebody actually told me I was the kind of the director of special projects. And I was like, what the heck does that actually mean? And it's like, whenever we get the big messy thing that we don't know what to do with, we give it to you because you love that kind of stuff. And that's true. The folks that I am working with and talking to right now are folks that want to double, triple, quadruple their, the size of their business. They want to generate more cash and they want to create a business that can ultimately either sell or be in a position if they ever want to have that option. And I think that's a great exercise to go through and it's one I'm very comfortable with. Interesting. Is there so, any niches that you specialize in? Most of my career has been in SaaS or the service as well as kind of fitness and wellness. I like anything with a recurring revenue. So a membership, a subscription. And I think that comes from kind of who I am, which is I like relationship-driven business, not just a one-time sale. Yeah. So if you have any kind of recurring revenue or want to, some people I've talked to recently have said, I'm a physical products business. I don't have a membership. We've created memberships for dentists. We've created memberships and subscriptions for mattress stores and everything in between. I look at recurring revenue and relationship sales as one and the same from the standpoint of you create a relationship with the customer, you want to solve problems for them. Most problems are solved over time, not in a single transaction. Right. Lovely. Do you find it hard to separate yourself from work? Because everybody's working from home. I assume you work in a home yeah. office as well. Absolutely. I do in a big way. Uh, one of the things that I didn't do a good, as good of a job with that I'm trying to do a better job with now is setting my calendar and living and sticking to it rather than kind of having this kind of expansion and contraction of time. Like, <laughs> oh, I'll just do it later. I can just I'll jump on my computer after the kids go to bed kind of idea. I'm really trying to fight that. And it's still a challenge for me because I want everything done now, trying to both be better at prioritization, but also take the opportunity. My kids are in that kind of age of nine, 11, and 13 at the moment. The next couple of years are going to go by fast. And I want to make sure that I don't spend that time in doing things that I might look back on and wish I played differently. Yeah. 9, 11, 13. So your 13 year old, if you think about it, you have five summers left with her, right? Before it's, it, you're killing me. I, exactly <laughs> right. I think I suffer with that as well when it comes to separating, because I, I can tell you enjoy what you do. I love what I do. And when it comes to separating work from the rest of my life, it is really challenging. And the only solution I found is time is you can't stretch and compress time, but set a beginning time, like a start time, set an end time and just be extremely disciplined with that. And for most people, it's really hard because your computer, your phone, everything is just nearby. It's one of those disciplines that I know I want to work harder on and just be more mindful. I've been yeah. practicing meditation a lot for the last seven, eight years. I've been religiously meditating and I found that that actually helps a lot. Do you have any kind of wellness routine that you do to ground yourself? My wife and I walk with two dogs as well. So that's kind of time that we get to kind of spend together. I actually like that process. I fell away from it for a period of time, but sleep, sleep for me is a big lever. And the idea of setting a time, setting an alarm to go to bed rather than to wake up 
was something that worked well for me in the past. We all need to be reminded more than we need to be taught. Consistency of the things that make a difference are focused for me at the moment. Do you have any productivity hacks like meditation tech or sleep rings or anything like that? that you oh, My wife got me a whoop. It has allowed me to pair the idea of recovery and work. If I have a bad night's sleep and I'm not recovered, I would try to push and that would usually not end up well. Now I'm doing a better job of being able to align those things and being more mindful of quality of both exercise and sleep has been really good for me personally. Instead of just doing a 10,000 step goal, which is fantastic, this kind of goes one level deeper than that. Um, mindfulness is something for me, I have not meditated consistently, but taking breaks, more mindful of the idea of getting out from behind screen and doing, I'm now reading books. I'm trying to make those decisions to say, I'm willing to go analog in certain <laughs> and finding those opportunities. I think it's good for everyone. I like that. Analog is mindful. I think you're doing a pretty good job there. Yeah. If somebody wanted to help with building a better business for themselves, is there something that you have that you can offer to help them? Yeah, I work with service-based business owners from basically up to about 10 million a year in revenue, but most of them are kind of sub two or 3 million a year. And the number one thing that I see, and I've seen this for the last 10 plus years, is lacking clarity around where you're going, feeling stuck because you don't know what the right next thing to do is. So I created a worksheet, I call it the Build a Better Business Audit, and it's at timcalise.com. That's T-I-M-C-A-L-I-S-E dot com slash audit, A-U-D-I-T. It's a simple one-page worksheet that takes you from who your ideal client is all the way through lead generation and acquisition to the things like what are the most important things we need to do to jumpstart the relationship or start the relationship on a right foot with each of our clients. And it's allowed us to do, I think, two things. One is clarity for ourselves. Taking what's in our heads and getting it on paper is a great exercise for everyone. But then you can take that artifact and give it to your team or give it mm -hmm. to anyone to say, here's the journey we're going on. And everyone can kind of align around what that process looks like. So there's no assumptions or things like that. So yeah, timcalise.com slash audit. It's free. Would love to offer that out to anyone who's listening. That's a really simple thing to, to walk through. It takes a couple of minutes. Oh, great. And that seems like something you could probably do with a co-founder as well, so that you're aligned as you go down the journey. Yeah, I'd actually encourage anyone who has a partner, do them independent of each other. Then come together and compare notes, see where there are differences, and then you can take your two versions and if you need to, create one master. Because it's a good opportunity to understand, and it's not always the big things, the little things. Like, how do we articulate who our core client is? Do we both see it the same way? What is our core value proposition? What are the three most important things that every new client must do in order to stay with us for the long term? And those things are hugely important. Kind of the idea of activation for a new relationship is like you know, ClickFunnels, which is a, obviously a very successful organization. One of their metrics is you have to buy a domain name because they know if you don't buy a domain name, you're not going to be able to publish your funnel. Seems simple. But everyone in that organization knows that once someone signs up, the next thing they have to do is they have to attach a domain. Everything else doesn't matter unless that one thing happens. I would argue, what is the thing in your business that is the non-negotiable? If they don't consume the kickoff video, if they don't schedule and attend their orientation, if they don't onboard their first client in seven days, 
then they're going to fall off. And those types of things are, are, I think, around feeling stuck. If you have clarity around what those specific things are above and beyond, just create a great experience. It's like, no, we're going to be laser focused on A. And if they do A, then we want them to go to B. And once they do B, they have to do C. If they don't do A to C, then we have a 90% chance of losing them. It's a great like, okay, guys, this is where the organization needs to be. Customer success. You've got to be here. Sales. You got to be on this. Uh, And I think it's a great way to get everybody kind of talking from the same script. That's amazing. I'm looking forward to trying it out for myself. If you have one for parenting, let me know. I think we'd all love those. <laughs> exactly. I, yeah. I, I need a few more years of probably experience to take a shot at that. Sounds good. Yeah. One last thing, actually, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about your new podcast. I recently announced a podcast. It, it's called the Leveling the Field podcast with myself and I'll have some guests along the way. The name comes from the concept of taking my kind of institutional investing and private equity experience and bringing that to small business. But also the idea of I'm creating, we've got a great community of small business owners that are looking to go and take their market. So there's an information leveling of the field. There's also just a very kind of rudimentary cavalier. We're going to go take them out. And I do a weekly office hours, typically Mm -hmm. on Thursdays. There's no, it's completely free. It's just my way of bringing kind of folks together to say, what are the top questions on your mind? And then we can kind of clear those and get everybody headed off with clarity through the end of their week. It's called Leveling the Field. It is with myself as the host and it's on Apple and Spotify now. Leveling the Field with Simplish. I'd love for you guys to check it out. Awesome. I've listened to a few episodes and it's really good. I encourage anybody listening to this conversation to definitely go and it's on Google as well. I I did a quick search and it shows up on Google Podcasts. You can find it. Excellent. Well, Tim, this has been really fun. Is there anything I missed or anything else that you want to add? No, it's fantastic. I'm just optimistic. If anybody out there is feeling like the changes in kind of the environment, market, climate, whatever it might be, are kind of affecting you, just know that every time there's a change, there's opportunity. So know how you'll participate. And I think we've talked about kind of some wellness and mindfulness tips, which just make sure those don't fall by the wayside. You'll be ready for anything. Awesome. So if anybody needs to connect with Tim, you can find him at timcalise.com. We're going to put them in the show notes, the link to the better build a better business audit and also a link to your podcast as well. Thanks again, Tim. I'm really glad we had a chance to talk. Likewise. Thank you so much.